Welcome to Mytholadies, the podcast where we talk about women from mythology and folklore all over the world. We're your hosts. I'm Lizzie. And I'm Zoe. And today, Lizzie, you did the research, so who are we going to be talking about? So today we're going into a Tamil epic known as the Siddhapatikaram, and we'll talk about the main character who is called Kanaki. Awesome. Have you ever heard of this epic? So you've mentioned it to me, but I don't actually know anything more about it. Okay, so. The Siddhapatikaram is an example of Sangam literature, which are the earliest writings in the Tamil language in India, thought to be produced from the 1st to 4th century CE, though some scholars think earlier or later. Awesome, that's so cool. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about it. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, Sangam epics are unique among early Indian epics because they are largely non-religious, talking instead about love and heroism, though some also do have allusions to mythological figures, as we'll see today, but the difference is that they don't focus on celebrating or worshipping these mythological figures. That's so cool. Oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... There are thought to be five great epics of Sangam literature, of which the Silapatikaram is thought to be the earliest. Three out of five of the great epics, including the Silapatikaram, were written by Jains, and the other two were written by Buddhists. Okay. According to R. Partasarati, an Indian poet and scholar who translated the Silapatikaram into English, the Silapatikaram is to Tamil culture what the Iliad is to Greek culture. Wow. He also contrasts the Siddhapatikaram with the Mahabharata, one of the two major Sanskrit epics of ancient India, the other being Ramayana. Mm-hmm. In contrast with both the Mahabharata and the Iliad, the Siddhapatikaram doesn't focus on war, which makes sense because it was written by Jains, who focused on nonviolence. Uh-huh. Also in contrast with the Iliad and the Mahabharata, and perhaps more importantly for this episode, the protagonist of the story is a woman. Yes. <laughs> and not a deity or a warrior, but just an ordinary woman facing extreme grief. Oh. Yes. Awesome. Quick question, just for my own personal interest. Is it written in verse or is it written in prose? Uh, verse. And it's a specific verse that's um, found in a Tamil literature that I forget the name of. But yeah. Okay. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. So, Siddhapatikaram is made up of two words, Silampu, which means anklet, and Atikaram, which means the story about. The title literally means the story of an anklet. Oh. Yes. So the author is known as Ilanko Atikam, which is a pseudonym meaning the venerable ascetic prince. Little is known about him, but he is believed to be a Jain monk and brother of a Chera king. All right. The heroine of the story is called Kanaki, whose name means virgin in Tamil. This will become important later, as we'll see, as she is a woman celebrated for her chastity. Oh, boy. (laughs) But let's get into the story. (laughs) Okay. So, in the city of Puhar, the capital of the Chola kingdom, there were two children of merchants named Kaneki and Kovalin. When it starts off, Kaneki is 12 years old and beloved by Kovalin, who is 16 years old. So... Mm, Okay. Yeah. Okay. So so they were <laughs> married, and it was a very joyous occasion, and everyone celebrated, and Kanaki and Kovalin were very happy and in love. And several years passed in bliss. Okay. So there's another character called Matavi, and she studied dancing, singing, and enhancing her beauty for seven years. She's also 12 years old. 
and mastered wait so but she she was 12 years old and then it was seven years no she was not she's 12 years old and it's been seven years so she was like five so she was five oh oh my gosh yeah okay different times okay um and she mastered all three of these arts and she's frequently referred to as mativi of the long flower-like eyes okay so she was so good at dancing that she was allowed to dance in front of the king she performed her song and dance so beautifully that the king gave her a garland of flowers and 1,008 pieces of gold, which was a customary gift for dancers that performed for the first time. Okay. So Matavi asks her maid to go out into town where the elite walked about and offer the garland for sale, saying that whoever buys it will become her husband. Hmm. The garland is bought by none other than Kovalin. Uh-oh. He came under her spell the instant he took her in his arms and promptly forgot about his own wife at home. Oh no! Yeah. So, as Kovalin and Matavi were living in marital bliss, Kaneki was depressed at home. Yeah. She stopped wearing jewelry, she stopped putting oils in her hair, her eyes no longer sparkled, she didn't smile anymore. But she didn't complain, she was just very sad. Okay, and she never knew what happened. Her husband just didn't come home. I think she knew what happened. Oh! Like, she knew he was unfaithful. Okay. And she's no longer 12 years old. No, it's been a few years. Okay. I don't know how many years. I assume she's probably, like, still a teenager, but... Okay. I don't know exactly. Okay. So, during the festival for Indra, the rain god, there was a singing competition. Okay. Matavi takes her lute and puts it in Kovalin's hands, and he sings songs about a woman who hurts her lover. Mm. Matavi assumes Kovalin is no longer interested in her, so she takes the lute and sings about a woman betrayed in love. Wow, there's a lot of assumptions happening. Basically, yeah. And Kovalin also thinks this song is about someone else and leaves her. She tries to get Kovalin back and sends him a letter, but Kovalin refuses to read it. Mm. Yeah. So, meanwhile, Kaneki has a dream that she went with Kovalin to a great city, where Kovalin was accused of a crime he did not commit. In the dream, Kaneki pleaded in front of the king. And she wakes up and she's very distressed by the dream. And so Kovalin returns to Kaneki, having lost all of his wealth after spending it all on Matavi. Actually, Matavi's mother sort of swindled him out of the money, but anyway, he's out of money now. Okay. So Kaneki takes him back, saying that hope is not all lost because she still has a valuable pair of anklets she can give to him. Kovalin says he will take the anklets and sell them so they can get some money back. Mm. So they try- What? I I I am suspicious of him. I don't trust him. That's a that's a fair thought. But um <laughs> all right. Okay, all right. so Keep they going. travel <laughs> to the city of Madurai, which is in another kingdom, hoping to win back some of their fortune. The journey is very long and tiring, especially for Kaneki. And there's a passage in one section where Kovalin has to face the fact that their suffering is caused by his past deeds. Mm-hmm. He's told that he performed good deeds in past lives, but these good deeds are exhausted, and that's why he and his wife are facing distress. And now he has to face his fate and not grieve the fact that his karma has shown itself. Okay. Okay. So yeah. And during this journey, Matavi also has Kovalin's daughter, who is named Mani Mekele, who then gets her own eponymous epic. Oh! Yeah. Alrighty. 
But anyway, back to our story. Colin sells one of the anklets to a goldsmith in the city. The goldsmith had recently stolen a similar anklet from the queen, and he seizes his chance to pin the theft on Kovalin. Oh no. And Kovalin is arrested by the king and executed without a trial. Oh my gosh. Yeah, so he's he's just executed. All right, and then her dream came true. Yeah, exactly. So when Kaneki learns of this, she is angry and weeps and falls to the ground as if the rising moon had fallen with the clouds on the wide earth. She mourned for him in sorrow and wrath, weeping over his body, and decides to go to the king to demand an explanation. So she goes to the king and explains her plight, accusing him of executing him unjustly, and he at first says that it isn't unjust to put a thief to death. Mm. So Kaneki pulls out the other anklet and says that her golden anklet contains gems, whereas the stolen anklet contained pearls and shows him the anklet as proof. Okay. The king realizes his mistake and that he has failed in his kingly duties and says, let me depart from this life, and he dies. Oh. Yeah. Kaneki curses the people of the city, saying, I shall not allow this city to flourish, but will destroy it along with its sovereign. You will see the truth of this. Awesome. Okay. Then, and a bit of a trigger warning for self-mutilation, she tears off her left breast and throws it into the street, and her curse sets the city on fire, the only people being spared being brahmanas, the righteous, cows, chaste women, the aged, and children. So everyone else is killed in the fire. Okay, there's a lot to unpack there. So yeah, because basically she says, I'm going to set the city on fire unless you are righteous or innocent or, you know, like a child. And then mm-hmm. the city goes up in flames. Yeah, and of course the only, like, pure women and the upper case people are like bared yeah and children (laughs) and the children okay that's good but all the unrighteous people are killed Yeah, all right. Anyway, then there's a quote, and it says, The matrons who unfailingly attended to household duties and entertained guests rejoiced greatly. They worshipped and praised the fire god, whose flames rose high, saying, losing her husband, whose chest shone with a beautiful garland, this lady won her victory with her anklet. Is this war waged by her breast unjust? Not so. People were, like, on her side. Okay, yeah. And then the goddess Maturapati speaks to Kaneki and calms her down. So Maturapati was a family deity of the Pantheon king, so the man who just died. Mm-hmm. And Maturapati tells Kaneki that she and Kovalin had been connected in their previous life. In their past life, Kovalin had killed Kaneki's husband by mistake, and Kaneki had then committed suicide. Mm. So both had committed the sin of taking a life, and even though Kaneki was virtuous in this life, you can't escape your past sins. Okay. Yeah, Maturapati says... When actions in a past birth by those devoid of goodness yield their result, no amount of penance can stop them. Wow, okay. After 14 days, Indra, the king of gods, took Kaneki up to heaven in a divine chariot. So at this point, Kaneki has died, but she becomes a goddess of chastity. Oh! Her goddess name is Patini, and she's especially celebrated in Sri Lanka, where she is the goddess of fertility and health, and particularly protection against smallpox. She is honored in fertility rites and is still worshipped to this day. She still has about six temples dedicated to her in Sri Lanka, as far as I can tell. But uh, back to the story. 
Okay. The third section of the Silapatikaram is dedicated to the king of Chera learning about Kanaki's story and building a statue of her and a temple to her was built as well. And he says, Because it is a fact that gods will worship her who worships not God but worships her husband, Kanaki, the jewel among women of the earth, became a goddess and the guest of the ladies of heaven. So the temple was built, a royal sacrifice was made, and the temple was endowed, and the goddess herself blessed the occasion. Okay. And thus ends the Silpatikara. All right. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, <laughs> so obviously there's a lot there. Um, yes. It seems like, you know, essentially she's being worshipped for being, you know, the ideal woman, mm-hmm. you know, for being pure and chaste, for being totally devoted to her husband, mm-hmm. being self-sacrificing. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, and so that's basically what she seems to be worshipped for. And it seems very interesting because it's very much a story of a woman who doesn't want anything good for herself, but then gets all the good things anyway. So, you know, it's sort of like the message of if you want, like, good things to happen to you, you can't, I mean, you can't be, like, greedy, you know? You have to be humble. You have to be humble. Yeah, exactly. And there are honestly, like, a lot of aspects of the story that remind me of the Virgin Mary. And so, like, the particular is the fact that Kanaki is worshipped for being chaste, and honored for being chaste, as the Virgin Mary is. And then particularly the fact that when she dies, she dies because she is taken up physically into heaven. Yeah. And that's exactly what happens to Mary in the Bible. That's, like, literally exactly what happens. That's interesting. And so, I don't know. I mean, I, I just think that's very interesting that it's, like, the same thing. I kind of want to know what happened to Matavi. Well, we'll find out in a bit. Oh, really? Yes. So, in terms of Matavi's fate, she found out that her mother was sort of taking all of Kovalin's money. Mm-hmm. And she returned all the money to Kovalin's parents, and she then became a Buddhist nun. Okay. Well, good for her, I guess. <laughs> yeah, so... Matavi is an interesting character. First of all, there are pages and pages dedicated to talking about how good she is at her craft and how talented she is. I feel like her depiction is like actually kind of positive as far as depictions of courtesans go. Like there is an extent to which she's portrayed sort of negatively since she's the other woman uh-huh. who drains Kovalin's money. But when she finds out that so much of Kovalin's money was taken by her own mother, she repents and becomes a nun. Mm-hmm. So she renounces her wealth and retires to a monastery. So now it's like this woman has a strong moral compass. You may have previously mm-hmm. thought of her negatively, but now she's being shown to be moral and righteous. And that's where her story ends. Yeah. Which I think as far as endings go, it's pretty positive. Yeah, definitely. I think it's honestly a pretty positive ending because like, it's definitely, I think still to some extent is a condemnation of the life that she had before, but it's not as strong as if like, it'd been like, oh, she dies or like she commits suicide, you know? Like, Ex- yeah, exactly. Um, instead it's like, oh, she sees the error of her ways and becomes like a better person, which is like nice, you know? Like, yeah. It's, I mean, it's a soft lesson and of a hard lesson you know exactly like like, if you continue like this you're gonna die and be condemned forever or whatever like you know yeah and it's also the fact that maltavi and kaneki aren't depicted as enemies or jealous of the other like they both love Mm kodalin but to my recollection there aren't any moments of like hatred for each other okay if anything they're just like shown to be sort of opposites as Matavi is a courtesan and Kaneki is a chaste woman, but in the end, they're both shown to be highly moral and righteous. Okay, yeah. Which again goes back to the theme of acting righteously so as to avoid karma or atone for past mistakes. Yeah. Whereas the other principal character, Kovalin, is the one who suffers for his lack of morality and his past mistakes. So he suffers the worst of everyone. For sure, yeah. And I think that him being punished for a crime he doesn't commit is basically like the most clear representation of being punished for your past mistakes like mistakes in a past life exactly because it's not really anything like him in this life has control over as far like but 
he still like is punished for it anyway because this is what has to happen in order to like keep balance or yeah i mean it's karma like Mm -hmm. this seems to me to be a pretty rare depiction even among modern stories where the female characters are shown to be moral and good and are rewarded for it whereas the male character is shown to be the one who was punished for his actions yeah and so then it's in some ways it reminds me of oiwa's story interesting because like what was his name the main male character of oiwa's story Iemon, yes, him. He was really awful the whole time and basically ends up being sort of tormented his whole life by Oya's spirits. He doesn't really find happiness and then he ends up being killed out of mercy. Yeah, he gets the worst fate because he behaved so badly. Yeah. And like, obviously, none of the female characters in Oya's story are necessarily like shown as pure and virtuous and rewarded for their actions. Mm -hmm. Even though, like, as we discussed, they are treated relatively sympathetically. But in this case, like, I think, again, we're seeing like the man who treats people the worst gets the worst results Mm -hmm. and so there's that sort of like justice in that way based on like whatever's you know pulling the strings yeah for sure any other thoughts about Matsuki well I think she's super cool I think it's cool how talented she is I think it's great she got 1008 pieces of gold from the yeah (laughs) however much it was like that's a lot of gold her story like started by reminding me of Salome from the bible yeah that makes sense Uh, but it didn't go that way at all so that was cool yeah. Because it was like, you know, she danced for the king and the king was so enthralled that he was like, here's a bunch of rewards. But like, obviously no one. Well, yeah, she didn't have anyone get killed or well, she sort of did. But like, no, I wouldn't say that she did. Not really. Yeah. I mean, like in a very indirect way, but like then we're really, you know, no, I see what you mean, like, like a, with karma and everything. And she it's like, well, because he lost all the money and then he had to go to this. But it's like, then you're really, you know, pulling, like, you're really looking at it very closely and thinking about it all. And it's like, no, like, it was the goldsmith guy. Yeah, it was definitely. And then it was also like, you're, you know, like, if from a karma way, it was Hovalin who was, you know, he had to repent for the, the sins he committed in his past life. Yeah. And there's also the fact that she's the mother of Money Makele, who gets her own epic. Mm-hmm. So I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, definitely. Which is also one of the five great epics, by the way. Awesome. Yeah. So, in terms of the politics of the time, so this was a time when epics were written to worship deities and kings, so it's very notable that this epic is about an ordinary woman, and that it features criticism of the king. Oh, yeah. So it has the message that not even the king will be spared when he makes an error of judgment, and that a woman with high moral standards will be respected and even worshipped. Yeah. So that's very cool. Yeah, and it's very cool. I think, you know, when we're thinking about karma, and even the king has to... Um, submit to pay up for what he's done exactly has to deal with the consequences and that is huge because like he's a king that didn't happen a lot and that wasn't allowed a lot exactly so like yeah i really like that depiction for sure i think that's very cool good to be critical of your rulers Mm -hmm. so all in all it has the message that one's deeds in both their present life and their past lives are vital to their fate and that karma is very important Mm -hmm. so our parasarati who i mentioned before translated one version of the sopatikara said denied love kaneki turns into an outlaw she has no father husband or son to live for and under patriarchy a woman does not live for her herself alone Mm. yeah so there have been as you can imagine criticisms by feminists of kaneki's characterization Mm -hmm. 
considering she's a woman whose virtue lies in relation to the men in her life and also her chastity. Mm -hmm. This is obviously a very fair criticism. Personally, I think her anger and her wrath are so powerful within the narrative, and it's so cool that she's the principal hero of the story. That like I'm not actually that upset about the anti-feminist implications considering the time period. Mm -hmm. I just think it's cool that she gets to be the main character and her rage is very justified and not dismissed in any way. Mm -hmm. There's definitely something to be said about the fact that she never would have become a goddess if not for the way she behaves as a loyal wife and a chaste woman. There's also a sort of power to the way she reacts to injustice. Kaneki isn't docile or fragile, but she's angry and powerful, mm -hmm. which I think is very cool. Yeah, yeah. One of my thoughts, I feel like, could it be said that she's sort of acting as a force of karma? Interesting. Because when she curses the city and calls for all the unrighteous to be killed, isn't that sort of calling for everyone to pay for the crimes that they've committed? That's like, yeah. And the bad deeds that they've committed. And so in the way, she's sort of like... She's carrying um, out their, her, their fate. She's carrying out their fates and she's sort of causing the karmic results of their mm -hmm. you know crimes and their bad deeds to happen but you could say she's just more of an agent of karma rather than a force herself yeah yeah she's sort of like you know a conduit you know she's making it happen she's calling for it to happen but then of course she's like the fact that she's even calling it to happen when it's such a powerful force is really like significant for sure she's so powerful and her rage mm -hmm. and wrath are very powerful and very interesting mm -hmm. in my opinion the most important aspect of the story and the most striking aspect is her wrath mm -hmm. like first of all she's shown to be righteous and justified and is even celebrated for her actions even though she killed people and set an entire city on fire mm -hmm. women's rage is often not shown in a positive light but in Kaneki's story, her rage is transformative, healing, ultimately one of the reasons she becomes a goddess herself. Mm -hmm. It may not bring her husband back, but it brings a sort of justice to the events. Yeah. Yeah, she decides that this place isn't acting in a moral and just way, so she punishes everyone and destroys the city, and that's so powerful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, you know, she's bringing justice where there hasn't been justice, or she's sort of, like, allowing for the justice that needs to happen to happen. Exactly. And that's super cool. Yeah, and I also think it's notable to mention that though she does mourn and grieve, her principal reaction to losing her husband unfairly is anger rather than sadness. Mm -hmm. All right. She spends very little time crying over how unjust the situation is and instead takes action. I find this very powerful, especially because it strikes me as very rare. Women's grief is much more acceptable when it's characterized by crying and mourning. But Kaneki takes action against the unjust actions of the king and doesn't even stop at his death. She wants to destroy the very foundation yeah. of the system that killed her husband, so she sets the city on fire. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because we talk a lot about how women's grief is depicted in mythology and how it has like a lot of power behind it. Exactly. And a lot of the time it's because of like the weeping part, you know, like they cry so much that they Which is the also world. powerful. Yeah. And then this is also an aspect of grief and the anger part of grief. Which also shows its power. Exactly. And then like what you said was that a lot of the people really thought it was a good thing what she did. Mm -hmm. Like she was everyone. It wasn't like, oh, she was, you know, vilified afterwards, but like then she was taken up into the heavens and then everyone was like, Oh, you know, she's great after all. Like, you know, everyone loved her for what she did, immediately saw what she did was right and just and like celebrated her for it. Yeah, exactly. And she even gets temples built to her because of it. Like it's great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's also something to be said about the fact that even though she was extremely angry. Angry, she still takes the time to say that she doesn't want righteous innocent people to suffer mm -hmm. no matter how immoral the city is to her and she spares a lot of lives as well yeah and isn't there um 
a god that comes down to tell to call her to calm down. Yeah, Maserati. Right. Yeah, I do like think that's interesting. And it's female, female god. It's a goddess. Yeah, so it's a woman, which is cool. I think it's also interesting that like, you know there is someone that intervenes and tells her to stop. So like she's not allowed to fully unleash her rage. Yeah, and that's probably a good thing. But like there is something keeping her in check. There is a limit. Yeah, but also Maserati also explains everything that happened to her, like all this past life stuff and everything. Right. Yeah. So that's mm-hmm. also very cool. Yeah, like helps her see the big picture of everything. Yeah. So. A bronze statue was built of Kaneki in 1968 in Chennai, the capital of the Tamil Nadu region of India. It features Kaneki holding an anklet and demanding justice for her husband. Awesome. The statue was erected as part of an initiative to make statues of 10 Tamil icons who are associated with the history of Tamil literature. So, 33 years later, in December 2001, the statue disappeared from its pedestal, which was reported to be because a truck had damaged the pedestal and a statue had to be removed for its safety. Basically what happened was there was this politician called J. J. Lalita, who was the chief minister of the Tamil Nadu region from May to September 2001, and she resigned due to corruption charges. After the statue disappeared in December, another political party claimed that the statue had been removed on the advice of J. Lalita's astrologers who claimed that the statue could bring her misfortune. Hmm. But the statue was reinstalled in 2006 under the leadership of M. Karananidi, who had called the removal of the statue a challenge to Tamil pride. Okay. Which goes to show you how big the Silapatikaram is in the Tamil Nadu region. Definitely, yeah. So, as for the anklet the titular anklet. So anklets provide protection against evil spirits, probably deriving from symbolic value of the circle. So taking a person's anklet represents robbing that person of their strength and dignity. Oh, okay. So the fall of Madurai begins with the goldsmith's theft of the queen's anklet, and Kovalin arrives in Madurai at this crucial moment, unaware of what he was stepping into, trying to sell an anklet himself, which is already an omen in itself. Mm-hmm. Kaneki appears in front of the king and breaks her anklet in front of him, another oh. yeah, another inauspicious omen, and the anklet, a symbol of her chastity, becomes a symbol of her vengeance. Wow. Yeah, and so the anklet is both a symbol of Kaneki's wrath and power, and also again a symbol of the motif of karma that our fates are predestined by past actions. The theft of the queen's anklet by the goldsmith was a catalyst to the events of the epic and ultimately led to the destruction of Madurai and nothing could get in the way of that ultimate destiny. Uh-huh. Yeah. And even now, any depiction of Kaneki is recognizable by her wielding of the anklet, notably in the bronze statue I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Well, that's really cool. I think that's really interesting how it becomes such like a symbol of power and like the fact he's selling her anklet and that means he's selling her protection and dignity yeah and she's and she's happy to give it up because she loves him so much yeah. but and then I, like that's also interesting considering like her role as this chaste virtuous woman and like how that compares to that but then also compared to how he's really hurt her he left her for another woman she's been grieving for a really long time and like how now he's taking this bigger symbol away from her mm-hmm. and that probably like contributes to the reason why he's facing up to repercussions for his actions and like the things that he's been doing yeah for sure like he definitely has a lot of things to atone for from like cheating on his wife and breaking her heart Mm -hmm. to the actions in his past life and Mm -hmm. yeah but yeah and then it becoming a symbol of her dignity and vengeance Mm -hmm. even when it's broken like when this anklet is broken taking away supposedly taking away her protection instead it becomes more of her protection becomes more of her vengeance and her anger yeah and this is when she sort of becomes a goddess you know yeah and she's challenging like everything and around she becomes her. super powerful and everything yeah 
Mm-hmm. And that's really great. Thank you so much for sharing this. This is super cool. Yeah, I really loved her story. I'm so excited if there's more to hear more. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed our episode, feel free to leave us a review and tell all your friends. And we'll be back here next week with another episode. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye-bye. Mythaladies podcast is produced by Elizabeth LaCroix and Zoe Kenninger. Today's episode was researched and presented by Elizabeth LaCroix. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Mythaladies and visit us on our website at mythaladies.com. Our cover art is by Helena Caillot. Our music was written and performed by Icarus Tyree. Thanks for listening. See you next week.